I'm starting to get spring fever, even though this pollen is killing me. It's time for a cause for celebration. Going to be a little self-indulgent here. Today is my four-year anniversary at FreightWave. So congratulations to me. Made that big trip from Boston, brought my family down here. And this was my first day, Craig Fuller. Back in the day, we had hires and everyone was in the office. We would have like this like draft selection thing where Craig would give all of us hats and everything. And I was just there in my Macho Man shirt screaming, from day one that I came into this place, it disconcerted some people. But I got to tell you, it wasn't just me in that class. That class was so formative to Freight Waves TV, that 2019 April and May class. We had Evan Hill in that. We had Anthony Smith, Seth Holm, and Emily Zank, Greg Miller on the editorial side. And if you look at those people, so the formation of Freight Waves TV is, you know, we took Freight Waves now from the GoPro, but then we took What the Truck. We put a camera in there. We turned that into uh, one of our first streaming shows. Kevin Hill and I started up Put That Coffee Down. We had great quarter guys with Seth Holm and Kevin Hill as well. And then obviously Anthony Smith and, um, and Zach Strickland. They started up Freightonomics. So really cool time. And it's just exciting a little bit for me to reflect on. So here's to four, five more years. It's been a good time. Um, now for the bad news. Now for the bad news. We've been talking about this for more than a year. It's the freight recession. Shelly Simpson, president over at JB Hunt, she posted this this morning. It says, I'll summarize it. She says, in my nearly 29-year career, I've seen several downturns. The Great Recession was the most dramatic, and I remember leaving our weekly executives' meetings feeling calm but challenged to build something stronger for the long term. Today, we find ourselves in a freight recession, one that is reminiscent of 2009 in shipments. Our recipe is taking care of our people, has been tried and remains true today. We are committed to our foundations of people, technology, and capacity, but without our people, our results are limited. Bad stuff. You can read that full thing on Shelly Simpson's site, or you can just read the screen right now. Um, and as you hear in other news, the nation's largest truckload carrier, Night Swift Transportation, they missed their first quarter expectations and significantly reeled and reeled in its 2023 earnings outlooks. Ben Shashurgi, he says, as someone who isn't a customer of Sonar and has no dog in the fight, I don't understand some of the flack Freight Waves and Craig received about these predictions. There were They were about the future, not like those other guys that tell you about the market and rates in the past. Amen. Look, cowbell for Ben. Muhammad Freight says, I learned how common and short boom-bust cycles in freight are from Freight Waves articles. I would have went bankrupt if it wasn't for that piece of info. I would have loaded up on finance equipment during the peak if it wasn't for you guys. Muhammad Freight, thank you, sir. Also on Freight Waves, here's one more little disconcerting thing. There's a story about Union Pacific, and here is a quote from... Union Pacific's president and CEO, Lance Fritz, he said, we do not have planned in our guidance a recession. A recession would be a problem for us. UP, you got to update your guidance. Anyways, on deck today, we're talking to Kodiak Robotics, James Reed, about the company's fifth generation truck. I got to see this in person a couple of months ago in Manifest. It's pretty sick. We'll get into that. AIT, Worldwide Logistics, Ray Fenley's here. He's going to talk about Earth Day, right? We're going to celebrate a little Earth Day. Talk about scope three emissions, tell you what all those are, what's good in that. For this analysis, Ross Kennedy, he's going deep. He's talking about weaponizing supply chains, a potential ag industry crisis, inland waterways, and the biggest problem shippers face today, um, and a whole lot more. So we'll tip the band, and then we'll get right into it. 
Your customers and investors want to know that your company is serious about sustainability. Show them the depth of your commitment when you rely on AIT, Worldwide Logistics, for your freight forwarding needs. Um, for Scope 3 Carbon and Footprint Reporting to calculating emissions at the transaction level, partnering with AIT sends a clear message to your stakeholders. You mean business when it comes to sustainability. Learn more at AITWorldwide.com. Speaking of AIT, it's where our first guest is from. Ray, Chief Information Officer and Executive Vice President. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. How are you? What's Four happening? years, huh? Four, <laughs> I'm doing four, good. I'm doing good. How long How long's the longest cool. you've been at uh, at one job before? Uh, well, it's AIT. So I started at AIT in September 5th of 1995. I'm here almost 28 years. So uh, decent tenure. So I've been with AIT a long time. Well, so <laughs> I you got you beat by a couple of years. You sure do. And you've celebrated like, what, 28 Earth Days now with AIT. Um, that was uh, you put out a big sustainability report. Anything interesting come out in that report that you're finding? Yeah, I appreciate it, Tim. We, we um, AIT, we've been making an effort the last few years, obviously, with our push. We've had a chance to chat with you before about it. And and certainly the past year has been a great run for us. We've uh, taken a few additional steps, obviously, first with sort of formalizing our commitment to our uh, sustainability program. We we signed, we became a signat, uh, signature, put our signature on the Climate Pledge last year in December, which is uh, if you go to climatepedge.com, you'll learn a lot more about that. But it's really our commitment to where we're going. So kind of putting our uh, money where our mouth is and, and beginning to move in a direction. But yeah, we have Earth Day tomorrow. We're publishing our, our latest sustainability report um, uh, right now, which is going to be going out uh, public here on our website. And uh, we're very excited. We, we're continuing our push towards net zero emissions. As you know, Tim, when we talked before, there's aspects of uh, getting to net zero that um, are less complicated than others. But in the transportation industry, you know, something like our scope three is is definitely a challenge. We're, we're trying to get into how we move freight at that point in time, whether it be via air, ocean or ground. So that can be a, a rather challenging approach. But we're, we're uh, a, a target. Sorry, but we are taking an approach where we're beginning to target insetting, uh, which is is this rather unique word that's come around the sustainability topic in the past year, as opposed to offsetting carbon carbon offsetting being uh, something that we can we can touch on a little later. But this insetting piece, we've been committing ourselves to that, and then of course maybe just a reset, uh, just taking a, an opportunity to reset on how we've done over the past year. So um, if you can't measure it, you know you you're really not managing it. So we're taking a look at how we're doing and and uh, how we're de de deploying our communication back to customers on reports on what their carbon footprint looks like. So past year has been great, a uh, lot of progress, um, continuing to look forward to it and can't wait for the remainder of this year as well. So let's talk, about, the way. Those, let's talk about those scopes. For people not familiar, you never heard about scope emissions or you're just not clear on one, two, and three, um, I'm gonna make sure I'm clear. Scope one, direct emissions, right? Direct emission usage. Um, scope two, Indirect use, like buying energy, like gas purchases, and then scope three right. would be upstream and downstream partners. That's right. Well said, Tim. That's exactly what it is. So if you think of scope one and scope two, just a couple of examples, just very quickly, as you said, electricity usage, gas usage, things like that at the, let's say, the building levels, but also your 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 teammates travel, you know, your travel, uh, whether you're traveling for business. It also includes things like commuting to work, 
So, you know, our, our business causes, uh, you know, has an impact on uh, just getting our teammates into the office. Uh, so that's an example of it as well. But you're right. So, so moving to scope three, that's down, that's downstream. So that's the people that you're working with. So in the world of supply chain for us, that's where we're getting into, you know, moving cargo, let's say from Asia inbound to the U.S. And how do we impact that and how do we try to get to net zero uh, emissions on, on something that we're is a little outside our immediate control. It's not inside our building. It's not something where there's one of our direct employees involved. This is where we're working with partners, whether it be a, a trucking company, a steamship line, and uh, an airline. Uh, that's where we're 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 taking this uh, when we get to scope three. That's the scale of what it is, and it is reaching out way past our organization. And today, like AIT does business with thousands of carriers that support our network and support our customer. Uh, commitment. So uh, it's it's a very large undertaking, a very large, uh, large project. Yeah, what, what does that mean for the transportation space? I know it's your big push now is scope three. That's that's right. Uh, so really what I would offer is um, for us, our we're beginning to kind of touch into areas where we're talking to our partners about creative items. I've been invited by one of the major global airlines to uh, to attend an event with their C-level uh, team. We're going to be doing some touring of uh, of, of a plant that is uh, moving towards sustainable aviation fuel. We can explain that in, a little bit more later, but certainly um, we're beginning to get, uh, start talking to our partners about what we can do to, to better deliver to our customers. And really the, the end user of these transactions is the, is the customer that we're serving and, and we need to make sure we're providing them with information about carbon footprint. So getting inside that relationship uh, with our great partners, understanding that the types of fuel they're using, the types of equipment, is the equipment modern, are the engines modern in, in the trucks? Um, people who are taking initiatives with electric vehicles, that's really where we're going. And of course, our customers play a role in this, Tim. Uh, you know, your experience around our industry uh, now, and, and you certainly know that, you know, when you come into new technologies to drive things, they tend to be a little bit more expensive. But we're finding our customers are actually willing to talk to us about expense. They're willing to um, step a little bit into the process where we're taking on some of the burden our customers are uh, as well. And I mean the financial burden because things like EV trucks are not cheap to put on the road. So uh, just using that as an example and certainly things like sustainable aviation fuel and so on, it's a premium over, you know, uh, standard jet fuel that we're moving to moving product on today. So uh, it's definitely, it's definitely a deep, a deep path for us. It's definitely something we have to keep, keep moving towards for sure. Right, I've with customers and I've done RFP, RFPs before, and I know that can be hurting cats trying to get data and stuff like this. This sounds like a massive undertaking. How do you manage to wrangle that data from so many individual partners and get them on board? Yeah, that's that's great. So we one of the things that we do, we actually um, take a lot of the ownership ourselves. So we we have some great data scientists at AIT. We have some great team teammates that actually are responsible for that, Tim. And we we basically take our data that we're capturing from customers and we actually aggregate all that data ourselves. Now, do we get information from our, our great carrier friends? Of course, they're, they're supplying us with information to when and where they're capable of doing so. Um, but in, in the meantime, we actually gather that uh, information ourselves. We're able to work with a, uh, we actually have an outside auditing company that helps us audit what we do. So they help us understand the emissions uh, that are being uh, used at a file level. So if we use the truck or we use trucks in the process of moving an air freight shipment or an ocean shipment, we're capturing all those pieces, regardless of how what was touching the product. We're capturing all those pieces and gathering that information and using science-based target initiatives. Um, people will hear that a lot when we talk about 
this idea of carbon footprint. We have to use the science that's behind it to drive this. And we use those initiatives to, to calculate um, what we're doing at, uh, at the file level. So, and that's how we're able to report back on it. Again, like we said, you can't, you can't, you can't tackle anything unless you can measure it. It's very important. Now, you mentioned a word that I hadn't heard before. And since I hadn't heard it before, maybe some of my audience has it. It was, it was insetting. What is that? What does that mean for sustainability? Um, fill us in. Yeah, so in, in setting. So I think everybody will be very familiar with carbon offsets. Um, so it's probably best. Let me start there. Carbon offset is really a company's effort to make up for their emissions. So um, you can purchase carbon offset programs. For example, you can go out and, you know, Sort of, sort of the analogy I think sometimes we hear is that there's organizations that will plant trees for a, cor- a company and so on. But, but really that offsetting is just, to be honest, Tim, it's, th- it's throwing money at a problem, right? It's, you're really just, uh, you're trying to make something kind of go away. So this concept of insetting, this sort of term that's come around in the past year or so, is really the idea that you take ownership and you begin to, um, to take, a, take a, a, an aggressive approach to your carbon one piece at a time inside the company, which is, look, lots of organizations are trying to get there. We Same for AIT. And basically, you just try to move towards um, uh, taking an, an approach that we're going to not throw money at the problem, go after it at its root cause. So um, get after the root cause of why carbon is happening at the company, such as people commuting to work, wherever those stages are, and then actually go after it. And really, uh, a shorter explanation would be that um, you know, in setting is taking responsibility for the carbon f- footprint that the company is generating. That sounds like a good direction for this this to go in. I, I know that there's been some heat on offsetting before and insetting de- definitely seems like the way to go here. How do people read this whole report? It sounds like there's new terms in here, new things, uh, new things on scope. People got to get up to date on. Where do I send them to? Yeah, so definitely we, we're publishing our uh, report here on our website. Uh, it's uh, AIT.com, uh, AITWorldwide.com, sorry. And uh, we'll have our uh, a very prominent on the front homepage, we'll have a, a link to our uh, new sustainability report. We're excited to get it published and give people an update on what we've done and where we're going. And uh, this is just hopefully the first step of many in, in this year that we'll be moving forward with. So. Oh, hey, Ray, enjoy your enjoy your Earth Day. Thank you so much for coming on and have a great weekend. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tim. Good to see you again and happy anniversary again. Take care. Take care. Talk to you soon. All right. Meanwhile. Just wanted to give you a quick update. Um, Kai is a big humper. He's overstimulated, um, literally humping everyone. Look at this dog's reaction. Um, and a lot of the dogs did not like it. He is social, but he's more concerned about humping everybody than he is playing and <laughs> it reminds me of my boy Randy. I don't know if that one just short out. That went a little longer, but that reminds me of Randy. He's uh he's ten months now. He's a boy, and um he has like a dog bed that he thinks is his girlfriend, and a bunch of stuffed animals he thinks are his girlfriend now. So I I don't know. He might have to see the vet pretty soon. Oh, he's cute though. Maybe he needs a puppy. Not really sure. Hey, let's talk to James Reed over at Kodiak Robotics. Last time I saw this gentleman was uh. It was in Vegas. I saw the team over there. The truck looked great, by the way. I love the, um, one of my, like, I've seen a lot of autonomous trucks now. And one of my things about all the autonomous trucks was like, this doesn't look like something you would sell someone yet. You know, it had the big eyebrow array of sen- uh, sensors all over the place. And then you put like the new side mirrors on there. I thought it looked really sharp. Thanks, man. That's exactly right. That's one of the things we're proudest about at Kodiak is that we've really, focused on building a truck from the get-go that's, you know, f- focused on a commercial application. And that's kind of been our design intent all along. 
I have to say a couple things, three things maybe. First is congratulations on your anniversary. You've uh, been a great advocate and voice in our industry and just proud to be associated with you and count you as a friend. Second, I'm not really sure how I felt about that lead-in with that dog right before <laughs> me. Um, but hey, it is what it is. Um, and and thirdly, I thought the last time we talked, we said we would do this inside one of our trucks. That offer still stands, and we'd love to have you. Yeah, I need to get inside one of them. This year, I want to get into a few more, and yours is definitely on uh, on my target list. W what's new? Awesome. Did you have great conversations in Vegas? What have you What have you all been up to since then? Yeah, I mean, Vegas was fantastic. Manifest was really productive for us. You saw there was a lot of buzz around our truck. There were a lot of people there from industry, from the media, from the tech world, just everybody was interested in what Kodiak was doing. We really felt like the bell of the ball at that uh, conference for sure. Since then, we've been extraordinarily busy. So even since that conference, we've released our Gen 5 truck, which I think we're going to talk a little bit uh, more about later. We no longer have what the team affectionately calls the unibrow across the top. All of our sensors are in our sensor pods in the mirror, which is, we think, a fantastic advantage for us competitively, uh, strategically, and just tactic tactically when it comes to servicing a truck and being on the road and keeping uh, uptime. We've also announced recently some really cool things with customers. We've got a deal with Forward where we're running 24 hours a day, six days a week between Dallas and Atlanta. It's hugely significant for the industry that we can do that kind of thing on a 24-6 basis. And then just this week, we announced a partnership with CR England and Tyson, which is our foray into the temp-controlled area. Really exciting time. Kind of proves the full complement of applicability of you know, autonomy to different you know, verticals, if you will, or modalities in our industry. So it's been a really, really busy few months since you and I last talked. Wow, so t tell me a little bit about those partnerships. Like, What does forward mean for you guys? Yeah, I mean, more than anything, I think it's a manifestation of the capability of the technology. I mean, the fact that we can run 24 hours a day. Now, the way we do that, of course, the truck is driving in autonomy. We have a safety driver still in the truck uh, for if any reason the truck disengages or the driver thinks they should disengage the system. So safety is ultimately our highest priority. And this business case will ultimately be founded on the, the safety case. Um, but the fact that we can go 24-6, we can go, it's an 800 mile round trip. It's it's a pretty incredible uh, manifestation of the capability of technology. And even though we don't publish how much of that time we're in full autonomy, it's it starts with a nine, it's a really big number. And uh, it just it, it, it's just evidence of, of the increasing maturity. And it's a fast curve, Dooner, it's happening quickly. Let's take a look at this new truck. You've talked about it. I think we have some B-roll to play. Describe this new truck to me. What makes it different? Yeah, the biggest thing is as you look at the top of the truck, across the brow of the truck, there's no sensor set at all across that part of the truck. One of the things you might remember when I first came to Kodiak, I first got involved with Kodiak as a customer. I was the CEO of, you know, USA Truck. Um, we were exploring autonomy. And, you know, you know this, but your audience may not know this. I have a background in Silicon Valley that predates my trucking experience. And I worked on servers and mid-range servers and storage uh, solutions. I look at these mirror pods and I go, oh my gosh, they're modular. Uh, it's more scalable. We've actually got a video out on our website that you can check out where we show changing out these sensor pods in less time than it takes. We did this in partnership with Southern Tire Mart with less time than it takes to change a tire. So it just inherently is more serviceable, more scalable, doesn't have the sensors across the brow. And, and perhaps most importantly, 
it gets us closer to our design intent of what we intend to go to the market with, which is everything encapsulated in those sensor pods. Wow. Well, you're on the way there. But the AV industry, it's a long road. There's There's been some hurdles. There's been some regulation, headlines about California, all of those kind of things. How do you keep up momentum when you have these coming in your way? And what kind of roadblocks are you encountering? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but we don't really see any roadblocks, ultimately. Um, if you think about some of the things you alluded to, and I'll just kind of confront them head on. You know, some of our competitors have, the way I say it, have kind of, have kind of blown their foot off. They've made some poor decisions, had some some challenges, um, maybe decided to go to public too early. And that's a different show. Maybe that's a, a, a different segment. But this whole idea of going public when you don't have revenue, you don't have secular growth because you don't have a product that's ready for the market, you don't have earnings per share, you don't have free cash flow, it puts people in a situation where um, if they didn't raise enough funding in the public markets to get all the way to product launch, they essentially have a venture ready, a venture capital ready product that's still in development in a public financing mechanism. And it's very challenging uh, to operate that way. And so there have been some struggles that I think don't speak at all to the veracity of the model. I mean, people believe that autonomy works. They, especially if you talk to people at a certain age, they believe that it's inevitable. I believe it's inevitable. And we're making tons of progress. And so it's unfortunate that that's been a little bit of a head fake. I think the other thing you mentioned was regulatory. We just worked in partnership with some others. Uh, and just recently, the state of Mississippi, uh, along the southern uh, part of the United States, was the last state to sign into law effectively autonomy rules that allow for trucks to be driven without a driver in them. And so if you kind of excluding California all the way across the southern part of the United States, there is an end to end uh, environment, regulatorily speaking, where we absolutely can run autonomy. So it's it's interesting. That's one of the things. And again, I think we'll get to this maybe towards the end. But one of the things that's that's really stood out to me in my time at, at Kodiak is, you know, I thought there might be more regulatory pressures. I thought and when I when I talk to people, they go, oh, yeah, the regulatory environment, the regulatory environment in the southern United States is not a concern. It's set up. It's ready to go. And it's not just like an accidental um, conclusion. There's been a lot of great work done to explicitly and expressly allow for uh, unmanned driven vehicles to drive across the southern United States. So it's a really exciting time. What is it? You mentioned that. So you have a six month anniversary of being at Kodiak and you come from a relatively traditional carrier over at USA Truck. And now you're in this brave new world of, of AV trucks. Um, fish out of water. Have you have you have you taken to it? What have you learned in these six months? Yeah, no, I'm not a fish out of water. I think one of the things that makes me unique in this uh, spot is I spent the first 14 years of my career at Sil in Silicon Valley at, at you know marquee companies like uh, you know Intel and EMC and T-Mobile and Isilon, where I was CFO. So had a lot of experience in Silicon Valley, and so it's more than anything, I'm just kind of merging these two worlds. I've spent about as much time in Silicon Valley as I've sent, spent in trucking. So it's been kind of an interesting reintroduction to tech. I think some of the things that I've learned, the observations that I've had, first and foremost, is just how critically important safety is. It's the highest priority that we have in the business, and everything we do is focused around that. I think the second thing is just the market acceptability of the technology. I mean, Duner, our industry partners, we have this uh, partner deployment program wherein we have some of these companies that we've announced publicly. I kind of talk about it like scanning a waterfront, if you will. 
we have representation in a dedicated carrier, in a 24-7 operating carrier. Uh, we just announced the temp control with uh, CR England and Tyson. We have another really cool announcement coming out the first week of May when we're at ACT or at the ACT conference, the, the ACT Expo. So um, really, really cool kind of, like I said, safety, acceptability from partners. And then I think the third thing we already talked about, it's just the regulatory environment. It's this idea that the regulatory environment is more primed and more ready than even I anticipated. So those are kind of things I've learned. Anything that you has surprised you so far that you weren't expecting at all to, to find out when you, when you got in there? Like, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, this is kind of going off my own script of what I had intended to talk about. So you're getting me uh, unfiltered here. Okay. You know, I, I spent all this time in these marquee tech companies early in my career, and they have understandably really well articulated engineering programs and really mature approaches to solving big problems. I kind of thought I'd find like this frat light like environment at Kodiak where the engineers are just kind of doing whatever they want. These guys are pros. I mean, the people that are focused on autonomy have been working on it for almost 20 years. I mean, the DARPA challenge was in 2004. If you think about that, this isn't something they just dreamt up one night, um, you know, in a lab somewhere. This thing has been in development for, you know, coming up on 20 years. And so I think to me, that was the biggest surprise. Like these are mature developers that have experience in world class companies, deploying platforms, deploying vehicles. And this is kind of the next frontier for them. And it's not just some fly by night thing. It is really the right, right next step in the technological evolution of transportation. It's pretty exciting. Well, when you think about those steps and you think about, you know, I just had four years here and, you know, Freightways is pretty much on track where I thought four years ago we would be now. When you think ahead five years and you project out and you look at what Kodiak is today, because aren't you? You're of an anniversary, isn't it like your fifth birthday? Kodiak's, I think it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So April was our fifth anniversary. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so you've been you've been doing you've been cracking at this even longer than I have. Well, where do you think Kodiak and the AV industry will be in another five years? Is it like wicked futuristic? Is it is it progressional? Where do you see it all going? Well, that's a really interesting question. If you think about what I just said, the industry basically is twenty years old. You know, next year, five years, it's that's another twenty five percent older, right? Um, so it's not a long time frame, but it's a significant time frame in the history of the industry. So I think you'll see some really meaningful things. First and foremost, not to sound like a broken record, you will see the safety case ultimately proved out for autonomy. I'd say that's in the next two to three years. So look for us to have drivers out of trucks uh, in very specific use cases uh, within the next two to three years. Beyond that, you'll see the commercial ramp of the technology and and then beyond that, I think you'll start to see, you know, not to be too uh, catchphrase or too woke, but you'll start to see kind of more AI development in the um, the algorithms of the trucks and how they deal with the different actors that are on the road. But it's a really exciting time. I think the net net of it all is five years from today. I would expect commercialization, uh, meaning trucks actually out autonomously driving without a driver will be a real thing for us. Wow. Do you see that? And I'm just curious now, is would that be like a hub system? Do you think these like a, initially launch in sort of hub receiving systems or, or, or how does that look? Yeah. So one of the things that we've learned in our partner deployment program is that there are specific use cases where this works best. And the fact that I came to Kodiak, I think, reflects Don and the rest of the team's commitment to really making sure we have an ecosystem to land this technology in 
and that we're really being focused on the commercial viability, that we don't just throw some tech at the wall and hope it sticks. We're creating an ecosystem where it will thrive and will, where it will survive. Will there be a hub and spoke system? Probably. It'll be like a landing area and a launching area. I think initially, even we have had conceptualized that as being at the beginning and the end of of a route or a, a uh, an OD pair, right? And you would have people essentially bring freight into those hubs. But what we've learned is there are lots of interesting other applications. I'm not giving away any trade secrets here, but you know, people look at shuttles and relays, all the stuff that we've always done in trucking. There's some natural adjacencies where where it doesn't create an incremental move in the process, and you could just slot autonomy in as a viable alternative to an existing modality. So there's some really exciting stuff going on. We're being very thoughtful about it. And I'll just suffice to say that, yeah, the hub and spokes, one interesting model. Um, people might call it a truck port to truck port model, uh, which is something that we obviously are working very diligently on to launch the world's first really commercial um, truck port. And then this idea that you can slot it into as a substitute modality for existing shuttle and and uh, relay operations is, is again, a really cool uh, option that's, that's emerged. Wow. Well, James, I, I'll take you up on that offer of, of checking out the truck. I'll just have your people contact Mike. Where would I be going? Where are, you, where are you testing these things right now? So we have an operations center in Dallas. We would love to get you dinner out to Mountain View in the Bay Area. Um, what's really cool that we're doing in the Bay Area is um, we have a, a fully autonomous move that we can do in the truck. So from the moment you leave our, our headquarters, go out on the freeway, you'll be in an autonomous mode the entire time. It's a pretty uh, fascinating thing. And seeing is really believing. Once you have that hands-on tangible experience with it, uh, you'll be a believer too. I'm there, James. Let's just let's set it up. In the meantime, go check out Kodiak Robotics. Go check out that if you want to see that video on their fifth generation truck over their YouTube page, they got a lot of stuff showing what they have going on. Thanks so much, man. Have a great weekend. And I hope to connect with you soon and get out to the Bay Area. Yeah. Happy anniversary again. Always my pleasure uh, to meet with you. You're the best. Thanks, man. Take care. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Know what's, know what's really nice? A little bit of moment of zen before we talk about like the destruction of supply chain and weaponization. I love a good, talented trucker. This is Zay, the truck driver. He found a piano at a rest stop and here's his magic. Put a piano in a public place and I will play. Not sure what to call this piece, however. Please share it if you like it. We'll say, we hear it, what the truck do like it. Share we have. I like his hat, too. You can follow him over at BrokenSword25 on Twitter. If you like hearing his uh, whole composition. Thank you, guys. Shout out to AIT. Did you know AIT Worldwide just explains to reach net zero emissions by 2035? That's five years before the date targeted by the Climate Pledge and 15 years in advance of the, prime, the Paris Agreement's goal. But that's just one part of their overall commitment to corporate social responsibility, whether it's protecting the planet, nurturing the communities where we live and work, or ensuring high-quality business continuity. AIT is taking action today to deliver a better tomorrow. Learn more at AITWorldwide.com. But now, let's get weird. Let's bring on Ross Kennedy. What's up, brother? What's up, man? How you doing, dinner? Where are you sitting today? I like the uh, I like the view you got going on there. Good, good. You could get you traffic reports and indications and all. That. 
I hijacked somebody's uh, office in a building just so I could uh, take a look at traffic and, and lord over all that I survey. I like that. You you are the the lord, the lord of um, supply <laughs> chains. I like your vibe, too. So online, you don't write a bunch of PR garbage or any of that stuff. You talk about some of the real issues that people aren't talking enough about in supply chain. And one of them that you've got on is this really interesting term, and it's weaponizing supply chains. But it's not just interesting. It's actually really scary when you start reading some of your rhetoric. Let's set the table here. What does it mean to weaponize supply chains? Well, and, and you know, in the U.S. and, and largely sort of in, in, in the Western paradigm, you know, writ large, uh, particularly NATO nations, we, we view national security and economic security as really two fundamentally different things. And, you know, one is one, one is the other. And there's really no or little, if you will, blurring of the lines. In the case of China, for example, they, they have set out on about a 40-year strategy to make the world dependent on, on them for so many things. And it's, it's a very significant, not only blurring of, um, you know, when you blur the lines, it's like, okay, we're going to kind of take little bits of this, little bits of that, and, and mix them in the other for success. In this particular case, though, it's, it's the deliberate targeting of logistics, of supply chains, of control of the means of production, whatever it may be, to utilize that as an actual weapon uh, or as an actual, uh, like a leash, if you will, uh, on the people who would be your adversaries. So in the case of, uh, you know, a very specific example here would be uh, pharmaceutical precursors. China made it cheap for the world to outsource the manufacturing of all these pharmaceutical and and drug precursors that would go to uh, all the other countries, right? We'll make them here. We'll make them cheap. We'll ship them to you. But what people did not understand or, or didn't really want to understand from a capitalist mindset is that the, the offsetting cost is the, is the cost of security. It's the cost of one day you gave them too much and now they control you because they can deny that to you. They can make it prohibitively expensive. So whereas we've always kind of seen national security as this, uh, it's F-16s and it's Abrams tanks and it's you know AR pattern rifles, they see it as anything that can be used to control or to subjugate or to modify the behavior of an adversary or of a friend, especially supply chains of essential things, we're going to target that. Yeah, I mean, food and medicine are just as, as powerful as weapons. You get the population Huge. going nuts. You've already seen uh, some of the stuff we do over here in like Targets and Walmarts just in the current financial situation. Uh, a little bit more chaos would not be would not be good. You know, I was listening to Craig Fuller's State of Freight on Thursday and he said that we're not really seeing significant nearshoring. Does anyone give a shart about this anymore? Because I remember, like, during the crisis, right, when all the ports were backed up, everyone's like, oh, we got a nearshore and friendshore, and it was this big topic, and now it, it, it's kind of crickets. The biggest issue with it, uh, there is some of it going on very quietly. I'm seeing some of that activity in, in pharmaceuticals. Uh, I'm seeing it in agribusiness as well. Uh, and there's really a hard push for things like shipbuilding and whatever it may be, but Really, at the end of the day, those are still uh, those are still things that are happening, kind of in isolation, if you will, uh, in the private sector. Uh, really, the you know we've seen uh, the Chips Act, for example, which was supposed to be this uh, massive draw for reshoring of semiconductors. We are seeing that activity, but it's it's kind of almost a one off, other than these little isolated cases of pharmaceuticals. So that is because we don't have a political imperative that's connected to a financial imperative, that's connected to a, uh, a larger economic uh, and national security imperative. And that's why a lot of my work that, that I've really focused on in the last year 
has been how do we take these issues of energy security, pharmaceutical security, supply chain resiliency, and connect them to a national security imperative. That's why you're seeing a lot of work all of a sudden around uh, Fufang in North Dakota. It's just a corn mill, but yeah, it's a corn mill next to an Air Force base. It's a gray zone thing. It's a weaponizing supply chains thing. It's utilizing uh, our economic need for gain against us, for an advantage over us. So the more we, we really try to frame the narrative as how does reshoring, how does making more food, how does increasing energy production, how does treating our truckers better as a huge issue, right? All of these things that have a downstream impact on the price and availability of the essentials that we need to be secure as a country, how do we connect that to a national security imperative? We haven't seen that yet at scale, but I think the more we begin to look at the farm bill that way, the more we begin to look at policies and regulations that impact sailors, impact longshoremen, impact truckers, impact warehouse workers, everybody in that value chain, the safer they are, the safer our country is. I think that's how we get to that uh, w without totally reconfiguring ourselves as being kind of a military civil fusion model the same way China is. Do you think we're making the right steps towards that? I, you did mention a few bills like the farm bill. Because there's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of public criticism when you go on these things. But you mentioned there's also stuff happening behind the scenes that the public isn't focusing on. Where would you say we're at with policy? We've got the hardest, in some ways, the hardest part solved, which is awareness and, and a growing political will. Uh, typically, the Farm Bill, if we look at that for an example, you know, it's not news to this show. It's not news to a lot of places that the U.S., for all of its ability to produce a lot of, a lot of grain, a lot of protein, it's a very fragile system, right? It's very oligopolistic at the top. Uh, it's very difficult to be an average farmer and make enough money to survive or to have your children come back and be a part of the farm operation and keep it as a generational thing. It's very difficult for those two worlds to coexist. And so the farm bill has always been kind of the way we try to reconcile this whole, uh, what is the price of food essentially for the different sectors? And how do we keep the agribusiness sector going through other political means? So that's where you have ethanol, which is largely a political creature, other biofuels as well. But you've also got the social assistance programs like SNAP that are managed under that, food programs, and then to some extent, uh, rural you know, welfare and, and, and uh, you know, those benefit programs. So if we reimagine the farm bill as how do we treat this as a, a, a bit of a, some gas in the carburetor of innovation in the rural economy, in the ag economy, the ag tech world, how do we incubate these, these technologies that will make us more secure and keep bellies full at a better price, but also create more resiliency in our systems. That's been the question we've never really gotten to. It's always been antagonistic. It's always more dollars for this or more dollars for that, rather than how do we spend money here and increase the benefits across the board to every, you know, all the stakeholders. This is the first time I'm really seeing that. We're seeing it come out, you know, I've had meetings with senators personally, with staffs, it is a bipartisan push. And really for the first time, the question about trade-offs is being asked and the question about what can we do, truly do, for government and private sector to be partners in this and, and partners in national security through food, we are finally seeing that. That's encouraging. Uh, and I refuse to be cynical about it right up until the point I have good reason to be cynical about it. But, but there is like some of the things that like, I, I was reading recently about the, the number of like vitamins, for example, that China controls, uh, what can, like, what can, if all goes wrong, what can happen there? Well, this was said to me, uh, to my face a few weeks ago by a Chinese individual who is a, who is a trader. 
And so these are not vitamins that go into like, you know, like the Flintstone vitamins on the shelves, although there is some of that, but these are commercial scale feed grade vitamins that go in massive quantities uh, when you add it all up into primarily the animal protein supply chain. So that's your meat companies, that's your dairies, that's your egg producers, things like that. If you take those vitamins out of the animal's diets, because they're not being fed naturally, I mean, we have to acknowledge that that's true. This is a more or less synthetic or corporate way to produce uh, food that humans need at scale here in the U.S. to keep it abundant and cheap and available. You got to have vitamins. You got to have these these very scientific, very specialized diets that are kind of tuned to the genetics of the individual animal. Vitamins is a key part of that. And here in the U.S., we manufacture 0% of the vitamins that go into the commercial feed supply chain. The ratio used to be about 80% in China, 20% elsewhere in the world. Uh, But now with BASF moving their massive vitamin production facility out of Germany and into China, we're now looking at a 90 plus percent dependency. The rest of the world is a 90 plus percent dependency on these critical products that have to go into animal feed in order for people to be able to eat. If China were to cut those off, we're looking at about an 8 to 10x increase in the price of animal protein, meat, and dairy products. And that's really just kind of an estimate because it's such a massive uh, downstream effect if those were to be cut off that it's almost it's really difficult to truly and scientifically quantify the impact of that. So when you, when you talk quietly to uh, the big meat producers, the big pork integrators, the big feed mills and, and manufacturing companies, 8 to 10x is, is about the range of guests. So if something is a dollar today it, you know, per a pound of meat, it would be 8 to 10 dollars. In the future, and you can imagine what that sort of destabilizing impact that would have. Uh, and and really, we don't have time. Yeah. Um, that's why vitamins is something I'm pushing very hard for in Congress as as a as a thing because the U.S. at any given time has about 90 to 120 days carrying capacity of vitamins, and then that's it. Well, let's talk about the the dollar. You know, we've all heard about the petrodollar. It's pretty obvious. You mm-hmm. know, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China. They all want the world off of it. That would impact trade as well, would it not? Well, what's what's going on there? Are you concerned? Yeah, I don't see the dollar going away uh, as sort of the global reserve currency of the world. But what I do see um, are attempts by a lot of different people to uh, primarily China and Russia, uh, Russia as a result of sanctions, China because China, uh, to destabilize, uh, you know, destabilize the dollar to create openings for market opportunities. There's still a lot of challenges that would have to be overcome for the world to move off the dollar. That's why I don't think it's going to happen. But what we are seeing is attacks on the dollar as adjacent ways to disrupt traditional relationships of strength that the United States has held. So is it it in reality super important that Saudi Arabia and China denominated a fairly small transaction out of the dollar? No, in, in real terms, that's not. But is it a signal that China is going to continue to do everything it can to destabilize every single way the U.S. exerts influence on the world? Absolutely. So if you start to see people move away from the dollar more towards a basket of currencies amongst the BRICS or something else, some other way, or even straight barter, that's happening in the world too, but it doesn't happen because there's no reporting mechanism because no cash ever changed hands. Right, a, a trade by our modern standards didn't happen, but a ship of oil can be traded for a ship full of grain, and the two parties can decide to arbitrage that value however they want. And, and 
really no money or very little amount of money changed hands, but two giant ships are moving with something that the other needs. That activity is increasing. It bears monitoring and watching, and it's something that if you're all in on the dollar is, is degrading and being destroyed, you're going to miss that type of stuff. You're going to miss the truth of the fact that the dollar is still strong. It's still a, a key thing. But if you're a dollar supremacist and you believe that nothing will ever displace it, then you're also missing that it doesn't have to be displaced. It simply has to be degraded and disrupted enough to shift the U.S.'s sphere of influence uh, away from a position of dominance and more towards a weaker position. You know, Ross, there's the urban legend of the guy at the bar and the hot girl slips some GHB in his drink. He goes back to the hotel. He doesn't remember anything. And all he does is wake up in a bathtub with a kidney missing. Is is organ harvesting like a real concern. I saw you post something about that. And, and what is going on with organ harvesting? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the urban legends, uh, largely are not true, yeah. uh, at least here in the U S right. You yeah. do see some level of that in other parts of the world. Uh, the, the interesting thing about it is, is that there are very few places where it's a common practice, but it is an institutionalized practice in China uh, the, the harvesting of organs of people who pass away uh, or people who are disappeared. Uh, this is happening in the Xinjiang province. It's uh, widely known, widely reported on. It's one of the reasons that the U.S. State Department uh, almost two years ago now released a brief saying if you have supply chains in Xinjiang, China, where they're, you know, where they're subjugating the Uyghurs, they use terms like genocide, organ harvesting and trafficking, Internal migration, which means essentially moving slave labor from one part of the country to another. This is happening. It is documented. And those organs are being sold on the global market and utilized as a tool of diplomacy or utilized as a tool of power. It's a really horrific, horrible thing that a lot of people want to put their heads in the sand about when we talk about, oh, you know, China's ethics versus the U.S. ethics we're not that perfect ourselves. We certainly fall short of the ideals that we claim to set for ourselves. Uh, but as an institutionalized practice, it's not happening here. It is happening around the world and uh, far more than, than I think any of us would want to acknowledge or, or that we're comfortable with. You know, there's a, there's a contingent of maritime people out there who have been screaming for a long time about the U.S.'s inland waterways, uh, how we get our ass kicked by Europe in that regard, and how we should be using them. Here's a map we got right here. How would the inland waterways in the U.S. make us a superpower? That's a great map. Oh, gosh, that's beautiful. I need you to send that to me later. Um, makes my heart go pitter-patter. So <laughs> when I look at, you know, when I look at the inland waterway system of the U.S., what you're talking about here is that by weight, you've got about roughly um, – 60 to 80 full truckloads, like we're on what the truckloads talk about in terms of truckload capacity, right? You've got about 60 to 80 full truckloads of product that can move on one single barge, albeit somewhat slowly, up the inland waterway system. But there's an efficiency to that economically that is, that is unmatched even when uh, there's disruption to the inland waterway system. Now, when you conceptualize that on an average tow moving up the Mississippi or Ohio rivers, there's 15 of those barges, each carrying 60 to 80 full truckloads of product. That is an unbelievable uh, cost advantage and efficiency advantage, being able to float our freight instead of having to always put it on truck or rail. Trucks, as much as I love my truckers, as much as I love the trucking industry, is still about the most inefficient way on a per metric ton basis or per volume basis to move freight. The most efficient is on water. Well, air is least efficient from a cost standpoint, yeah. then truck, then rail, 
than on water. So as we get to these uh, calculations of how do we make, you know, how do we reinvigorate and reignite an industrial revolution in the U.S., maximizing, upgrading, modernizing, exploiting the resources available uh, from the river system, that should be like agenda item number one is how do we use the inland waterway of the eastern and central U.S. to connect all these industrial centers in a more profitable fashion. John Conrad is on on Monday. I think he's gonna he's gonna scream all about this from from the high heavens. He's always yeah, John Conrad from GCAP. He's always yelling about oh, yeah. how U.S. shipbuilding and Dotmart and all of that kind of stuff. And he probably has even more insight on why this can't happen. But why do you think we haven't had more build out? I know we use the inland waterways for some things. He's got the Mississippi, but why isn't it more expansive? Are you baiting me into a Jones Act discussion and not adding Sal and John Conrad to this? <laughs> I'm just curious um, if you have thought on that. It's um, there, there's a lot of reasons for it. One is that it is a very um, it's a very cartelized industry. There's only a relatively few major players that are operating from the barge line standpoint on the river system. Uh, another is is that we just ha- have really kind of disconnected with the inland waterway's importance to the entire country because we're largely, in terms of the national debate, coastally driven. And so that's why everybody was talking about the ports and, and I can't get containers and a container to Kansas City or Chicago or whatever is $25,000 for a 40-foot container. And then nobody was talking about the fact that around the time that ocean container rates were peaking, because everybody cared about port disruption, around the time those rates were peaking, for about a tenth the cost per metric ton, you could get a vessel from China to New Orleans, material onto a barge, and move it up to Chicago for about a tenth the cost uh, when you were talking about like a peak spread. So there, it, it's an awareness thing. It's just most people aren't aware of it, and so they're not pushing it as a political or policy uh, objective. Another issue is, is that most of our secretaries of transportation are selected for uh, almost like a token handout role, like somebody's got to be in the cabinet in this role, uh, but they don't really have to have expertise. Now, uh, Elaine Chow, for as much as I've gone after her, Mitch McConnell's wife, and, and certainly for her family's extensive and deep connections to the Chinese Communist Party, she at least did come from a shipping background. She had some awareness and knowledge of how freight moves throughout the world. If we look at the current guy, Secretary Pete, he has really only used, in my view, the Department of Transportation or a SEC transit to bolster his credentials for a future presidential run and to enforce social justice and climate change related initiatives rather than being Johnny on the spot, kind of taking this moment to reimagine uh, our inland waterway system, reimagine our coastal waterway system to tackle some of the issues that are affecting importers and exporters, to deal with some of the Jones Act challenges, shipbuilding. Those are big, massive, giant issues that require a lot of political will. And generally speaking, I think the kind of person that ends up in the Secretary of Transportation role are just happy to be in the cabinet. They're not really interested in in leveraging it as a tool of economic supremacy for the U.S. Wow. Well, Ross, this has been very insightful. Before I let you go, we have a few stupid videos to look at here in Good News, Bad News. Hit the bumper, and we'll see what we got for Ross. You'll enjoy these, Ross. All right, roll the first tape here. Break stuff. See what's happening. You ever you ever quit a job this way, Ross? You ever jump in? Dude. 
and start smashing semis. You're gonna see him jump out here. Look, he, he, he was thoughtful enough to wear a safety vest. And apparently he's a team driver too, because he's got someone there with him. Well, at least he's got his, you know, at least he's got his, uh, you know, his reflective vest on, man, safety first. Do you think he needs a hard hat too, though? <laughs> he's slamming into stuff. I just, well, he's not wearing gloves. I mean, it's just really, if you're going to commit a, a felonious act involving company property, you, you know, you got to have something more than like a, a high-vis vest on, right? You got any um, company destruction property stories from your time in, in, in logistics? Not like that. Um <laughs> I've I've seen a lot of invert and you know inadvertent destruction of company property trucks you know driving into uh, warehouse doors from the inside and you wonder well how the hell did the semi end up inside a drive-in door in the first place and you know locked in I've seen uh, certainly a lot of lock, you know uh, parking lot rage issues uh, yeah. involving mutual destruction of somebody else's company property uh, brokerage nothing broker, quite like that That's fights I had a manager I put a wrong HDS yes. or something I had this I'm not going to name her so she doesn't sue me but I had this crazy manager over at should I even name the company? Probably not. Uh, over in Boston, over at Black Falcon, um, not the company. That's where it was located. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I got an HCS wrong, and she threw a damn stapler at me. And it wasn't just any stapler. It was a swing line. It wasn't a cheap one. It was a swing line, and it put a dent in the wall. It was terrible. Well, who's among us hasn't uh, gotten an HTS code wrong once or 50,000 oh. times? I mean, you're, yeah, man. you know, there's only about 11 billion of them, and... Uh, and that's even with the tools and resources available to match it correctly. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty entertaining. Ross, how reliant are you on your GPS? Oh, uh, depends on what I'm doing. Uh, I do know how to navigate around the country if I need to. I'm certainly not going to turn right into uh, what apparently <laughs> is a river. So uh, <laughs> I can't speak for a lot of other people in my life. Have you? What is the biggest mistake? You, I I haven't made a huge one with with GPS, but with like remember MapQuest? They, you'd have the printed out instructions oh, yeah? and. Uh, you get to be like, take a right on the unnamed road. That that could maybe lead to some uh, river canals. I get, you got to use your own logic, though, here. You know, you got to look around. Um, probably the unplanned, uh, I, I would say an unplanned route through the middle of nowhere, <laughs> Nebraska, uh, that, that terminated in a soybean field uh, was probably one of the sillier ones. Uh, probably the most dangerous one was uh, ending up in, in really lost in the middle of like uh, Soje, East Central Illinois. Or, yeah, East St. Louis, Illinois. So uh, a lot of truckers are familiar with that area. It, uh, that's not the best place to be at, like, you know, midnight on foot. So, Ross, let's take a look at this guy with his traffic cone. Tell me if this is fair or foul. Roll this tape. Let's Rule see what this guy's up. Four and trucking. Always carry a cone with you when you want to take a shit or a shower. Close that pump down. Come on. All right. Fair or foul? Leaving your truck at the pump and putting a cone down so you can go take a dump. Oof. Boy. I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's very sporting behavior. You know, it takes quite a while to fill a truck and there's never enough pumps. Uh, at the same time, I would say there's probably exigent circumstances. You know, if you're prairie dogging it, uh, I get it. You know, there, there's uh, it's really a question of need versus requirement at that time. And here's the truck driver signing off. He put up his keys to end his 18 year long career. Let's see. Turn off the lights. The party's over. Uh, love it. Quoting the great slick. Good things must end. All That's an awesome night. guy. The party's over. Good on you, driver. Good on you, Russ. Russ, where can people find out more about you? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter at MattHumanIntent. Uh, I do have a sub stack that I frequently post in. I intend to change that at some point, but 
uh, you got to stop making me come on these shows so I can write something instead. Well, maybe you have some new material to write now. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have a great weekend. I'll see you out there on Twitter. You can find me at Timothy Dooner. You can find the show at FW What the Truck Scratch Show, wherever you get podcasts. Take care. Don't be a stranger.